Well, when Scott uh, Butler had us all share, you know, our Christmas tree experience, I uh, realized that last weekend my wife and I had gone out and picked out a Christmas tree, took it home and put lights and ornaments on it, and if I do say so myself, it looked fairly incredible. Now, the reality is, is that I put none of the lights on and none of the ornaments on, but would love to take credit for it all. Uh, and yet, sitting back and watching that tree or looking at that tree, I just thought, you know, it's incredible to think that I'm sitting and enjoying something that pretty much is dead, or at least dying. And it got me to thinking about that somewhere out there in this world, there is a stump that at one time my tree sat on. And, you know, we don't usually think of Christmas as a time to celebrate the stump, okay? Nobody goes out and decorates their stump. Nobody is thinking about putting lights on the stump. The Christmas stump just really isn't something that is as pretty or as inviting as the whole idea of the Christmas tree. And yet, that Christmas stump is something that reminds us oftentimes of the barrenness and emptiness in life. This is the picture that Isaiah the prophet used of the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He describes them as a stump. And in doing so, he shows how God takes something that was stately and thriving and glorious and in a sense cuts it down. And all that is left is a stump. All that remains is that stump. And I'll tell you, you know, as you think about that, that's not necessarily something any of us really would see a celebration in. But Isaiah does something also that's incredible in that book of Isaiah. He says that there is still a possibility of something to come out of that. You see, when you're a stump or even just a small piece of a stump, things don't look real good. Things aren't beautiful. Opportunities can seem scarce. When you're a stump, it signals more of the end of what was and what, of might, what might have been. And so this is where God's people find themselves as Isaiah writes his prophetic word to them from the Lord. He writes in about the end of the 8th century B.C. And he writes to a people that are described as arrogant and rebellious, proud, they want to do what they want to do. And these are God's people. But God gets to have the final word. And so eventually what happens is that that glorious kingdom of Judah is brought to its knees. Where humility was absent from their attitude, they would be humbled in their lives. Out of this place of being cut down, out of this place where the glory has been removed, so to speak, those days of King David and Solomon where the kingdom seemed to thrive, out of that place of the stump now, Isaiah also says something else. He proclaims that out of that place of the stump, there is a new hope that is coming. He says that something 
will arise out of what seems hopeless. As much as they had messed things up, there was still hope if they could just focus on the right realities. And I think in our own dark world that most of us recognize that, you know, it doesn't always go the way we'd like it to. It doesn't always represent the best of what we think humanity should be representing. In our own dark world that's filled oftentimes with arrogance and rebellion or even the barren circumstances of our own lives. Those places where life seems more like a stump than a tree. All is not lost. There is still a Christmas hope to be celebrated. I want to suggest three realities which can encourage that Christmas hope in our lives. Since Proverbs says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the last thing I would want for any of us here today is that we would leave without hope. There is hope. The first reality I want you to think of is the reality of Christ. Isaiah 11, chapter 11 of Isaiah basically begins this way. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and, and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Key to the hope of God's people and humanity in general was an appropriate relationship with someone that would really count, with someone they could count on. For the people of Judah, in the midst of mostly failed rulers and misplaced alliances, the promise of a king, the promise of an anointed one, the promise of the Messiah, offered the possibility of something better. The symbols of the Messiah's rule are in contrast to the kind that Judah had known and Israel had known and experienced among their own kings. This king, this Messiah, was going to be recognized as God's true ruler. He was going to have symbols that were consistent with God and with who God is. Isaiah was offering hope that was embodied in a very special and particular person, the Christ. This one that came from the line of David. This is the one whom Jesus identified with in the book of Revelation. And he said this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. So where do we see this Messiah? Where do we see him? Well, the first place that Isaiah seems to point out is that this comes from a barren stump. 
This shoot comes out of a barren stump. Notice that Isaiah speaks in metaphors. Stumps present a picture of something that is cut down. They remind us that something that was once stately and thriving is now just a stump. A stump does not signify beginnings as much as it signifies the end. A shoot was also going to be part of this stump. It was going to signify new growth. But again, that shoot is small. It's possibly overlooked. It's somewhat vulnerable to destruction. It's so interesting that that very small shoot that might be overlooked might represent David himself as he was a son of Jesse among many sons. And yet when Samuel came to anoint a king, he was the overlooked son. He was the son that was out tending the sheep and that his father didn't even invite into the place where Samuel might see him until Samuel had suggested it. The stump is that place of barrenness and emptiness, but it's that place, that place of humility, that Isaiah says something is coming. Isaiah suggests that something incredible is being born where no one would expect it. Where might God be at work in the unexpected place in your life? Where might God's plan be manifesting itself in some humble or empty place that maybe you've overlooked, maybe it's unexpected? You see, at Christmas time, we celebrate, celebrate a Savior born in a stable. Emmanuel, God with us. And in that place, the Messiah comes, that very unexpected and humble place. And what I want you to think about this morning, just as we begin, is that this time of Christmas, don't underestimate what God can do with stumps and stables. And you may find in your life presently that life just seems fairly desolate. That life has been cut down. That what you imagined your life was going to be is not where you find yourself. Don't underestimate what God can do with stumps and with stables. How do we recognize this Messiah? How do we recognize the Christ? What are the symbols and signs that identify him? Well, first of all, Isaiah points out that he's going to be anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord would rest or make its dwelling on this one, this one that was coming as king. He would employ all the resources of God to see God's way promoted. These include God's wisdom and understanding, God's counsel and might, and the intimate knowing and honoring of God that represent God well. If Judah or Israel were going to choose a king, what better king could they choose than one that would relinquish, they could relinquish control to and find that that king had their best interests at heart? This is the king who would bring not just human wisdom, human power, or human intimacy, but would bring the very power and wisdom of the Lord. John saw the Spirit rest on Jesus at his baptism. 
He said in John 1, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. We celebrate at Christmas the Messiah who has come in wisdom and power that reflects and is full of the Holy Spirit. He is our hope. But also, not just being anointed with the Spirit, He also comes in the delight, in delighting in the fear of the Lord. Now, you got to understand, this is in sharp contrast to what Israel and Judah were experiencing among their own kings. Most often, the kings that are described in the books of Kings and Chronicles are described by the sentence, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet this king, this king was coming, and he was coming not just in obedience to the Lord, not just in obedience, but in delighting in the Lord, in delighting in honoring humbly the Lord. He would always be expressing what was consistent with the Lord, he would always be expressing God's will. And you got to understand, God's will is always with the intention of your best. Always. It always has your best in mind. You see, I know that at my house we have that tree, and their presence under the tree, they're all neatly wrapped and they have that element of mystery to them, what's there. And I'll tell you, I remember as a kid going and, you know, I just would wonder how many of those gifts are for me. Because somehow in those presents under the tree, it became all about me. And all of a sudden, I see this one, the Christ who comes. And it's not all about him. It's all about the glory of God. This is the one who comes. This is the one who is our hope. And not only does he delight in the fear of the Lord, but he is just. He is just. And so with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. It says that he's not motivated by appearance or hearsay, but he proves to be concerned about addressing the needs of the poor, the needs of the marginalized. How easy it is to cater to those who look the right way or will flatter us with nice words. But it's a little bit more uncomfortable to think about the poor and the marginalized among us. But this was the king that was coming. He was coming with a sense of, I care about those in need. I care about the poor. I care about the poor of this world. And they will receive justice. He is spirit anointed. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He is just. But he rules also with a scepter of his word says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. 
It's interesting that we oftentimes think of the rod as that thing that we use in discipline. Uh, Proverbs says, you spare the rod and spoil the child. Remember that little saying? And some of us, you know, uh, remember those moments in our lives where the rod became very crucial to us. But the rod is also associated in the Old Testament and in parts of the Middle East with the scepter of authority of the king. And to imagine for a moment that with a mere word, this scepter of the king, with a mere word, that the Lord could slay the wicked. This is the king that comes. This is the hope. One who is able with a mere word to make things right. Finally, he wears righteousness and faithfulness as a belt. The belt is something that was associated with clothing as we associate it with clothing in our time now. But it was associated for most of those of the ancient Near East with the most intimate clothing they would wear. It was kind of associated with their undergarments. It was something that represented being the closest to them. And to think that the closest thing to this one who is coming, this shoot upon whom the Spirit would rest, was the idea of righteousness and faithfulness is truly remarkable. It would wrap around him so that he was, it was tied to him. And everywhere he would go, that would be at the forefront of his thought because it was the closest thing to him. It was most intimate to him to have righteousness and faithfulness be represented. We long for those places of righteousness in our lives. We long for those places of righteousness in our world, and we can so easily see around us in this world places of unrighteousness and how remarkable it is to think that the one who comes is one who will step in with righteousness. Something he wears, it will always be identified with him. But not only that, but with faithfulness. We live in a world where faithfulness is in short supply. This one who comes brings it with him. When you look at your life now in the midst of the darkness of this world, those places of unrighteousness that you might see around you, are you not attracted to one who comes with the wisdom and power of God? Are you not attracted to one who wears around him that sense of righteousness and faithfulness? Are you not attracted to one who has compassion for those in need? Are you not attracted to the Christ? When we hold on to our control or seek the world's answers in life, we so often miss what Christ offers us and makes available to us of all the resources of God. Those resources that empower and lead us into his glorious presence. This Christmas king, the Christ, has come to rule our lives with wisdom and power that come from the Holy Spirit. Our chief task is really this, to keep our focus. Our focus and to keep our ears open to the Christ. To keep our focus on what he is saying and what he is doing, to keep our ears open to what he is saying and what he wills 
Our hope comes not by trying to regain control or even maintain control, but in the focusing on one who has authority and power to control all things. The more we focus on the darkness of our circumstances, the more we focus on how desperate our situation is, the more we find ourselves in fear of the next moment, the more we find ourselves dreading the future. But the good news is that a new king has come to rule. And he's like, uh, he's like no other. He's unlike any king before or any king that will ever come. With grace and compassion and justice, he will rule. With righteousness and faithfulness, he will make himself known. This Christmas, there is good news. A new shoot from a barren root has come. That brings me to the second reality that brings Christmas hope. The reality of change. Isaiah says, beginning in verse 6, this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is in these verses the scope of change and transformation that is truly amazing. It seems to go against what we for so long have deemed as the natural order of things. But that's the very point. Transformation that the Lord brings is deeper Transformation that the Lord brings is wider, it's higher, it's longer, it's more than you could ever imagine. It is not establishing something that is just adequate, but something that is truly remarkable. And it really reflects the beautiful design of the Creator. You see, that is not necessarily what we reflect here on earth. Most of what we do that we describe as the natural order of things are just a reflection of our own brokenness and sin. In the transformation that God is bringing about, His original vision of life and creation is being made known. It is a work that proclaims and gives testimony to the wholeness that He longs to bring in our lives. The Apostle Paul described it by that word, transformation, metamorphosis. He said this in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what kind of change or transformation does the Messiah bring? What possibly could he be, de be describing here? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that maybe one of the places of change is in the alliances that we have. You see, we live in a predatory culture. 
We are seeking ways to get ahead. We get our share. We are seeking ways to elevate ourselves. We're seeking ways, in some cases, just to survive. But what we haven't done is come to terms with our own predatory nature. We're prone in our sinfulness to react selfishly and really take advantage of those around us. Even within ourselves, we find that our very personality, our qualities of personality, are at odds oftentimes with each other. We find ourselves at odds with the lion and the lamb within us. To see these qualities of lion strength and lamb gentleness work in cooperation inside me is really what God longs for. It's the intent of his design. That we would be not only cooperative in this world, but that we would be inside of us at peace. We see the hope and the power of transformation as we look at the wolf lying down with the lamb. We see the hope of this transformed life in both the inner and the outer world of God taking us from places inwardly where we feel those places we're at odds with ourself, with the best of ourself. But we also see it in our relationships as God transforms us so that we respond differently. Not seeing the prey upon which we can feast and fill our hunger, but seeing instead a humanity that God loves. Interaction is no longer based on predator and prey, the stronger versus the weaker. We're no longer taking a defensive stance. But really what we see here in Isaiah's prophecy is a vision of peace and caring among humanity and among God's creation. While world powers would caution against letting your guard down, humanity dreams of this as an ideal. We long for peace. But the realization of this ideal doesn't come because of my effort or my ingenuity or your effort and your ingenuity. It comes by way of the presence of the true king of all creation. As the Christ comes, he gives us the power to change relationship inside and outside. But not only that, a change of alliances, but also a change of appetites. I found it fascinating as I read this that, that said the cow will feed with the bear and eventually it gets down and says the lion will eat straw like the ox. Now that's a significant change of appetite. We live in a culture that has lots of varied appetites. Some of them are fairly benign. Others can be extremely harmful. Philippians 3 spoke of appetites that become the primary God in one's life by the amount of influence they wield. They're appetites that are oftentimes described by the words immediate and excessive. I want it now, and I want as much of it as you can give me. 
We're so often driven by our appetites into excesses and enslavement. When we encounter the presence and the power of the king, even those appetites that we feel, that we feel we're enslaved to, there is the possibility of transformation. There is the possibility of change. You see, here you see longings for things that were never imagined. The fact that the lion would eat straw is truly remarkable. It's due to the presence and power of Jesus and not just the desire to change. It is an inward change of nature that reflects itself in an outer change of behavior. Jesus longs to transform our appetites so that we long for the food of the kingdom of God. So that we long for that which he brings to us. So that we long for what is truly beneficial to us as his creation. To be like Jesus and say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. A third change possibly is the change of attitude. Transformation moves from a place of fearful outlook and living to a place of courage and confidence. We're not in a protective stance, but a, but a stance that really is secure and safe in the Lord. This change of attitude, when you get down to verse 8 of chapter 11, he says, the infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Now, I would imagine that for most of us, that does not sound incredibly inviting. I know what it means to have children and to kind of watch them and to guard them and to be careful about where they are. Don't go there. Don't put your hand there. Don't. And to imagine that God is creating, that God is transforming and restoring his creation to an Eden-like environment where fear is not the main way we operate. But there's a sense of those places of fear becoming those places of play. I went to Peru when I was in college. And uh, while I was there, uh, I was on a missions base with a bunch of high school students who were all uh, kind of missionary children, and they had lived there for all their lives, pretty much. And I remember going, and I felt completely out of my element. I'm, I was not raised in the jungle, okay? And yet they were. I was not raised with all sorts of different wild beasts around me, and yet they were. Now, I did look at my brother sometime and think he was a wild beast, but that was beside the point. And I remember, you know, they, I remember being there and I was asleep in my bed one night and they had decided wouldn't it be cool to put a snake in John's bed. And I didn't think it was that cool. In fact, that kind of companionship in my bed really doesn't do a lot for me. Okay? And it was a little bit frightening. And it was all I could do to kind of keep my composure, keep my cool, act nonchalant. Oh, a snake. <laughs> but to imagine that what God longs to do is change those places of fear into places of confidence. And how many of us are walking in this world with this sense of just, I'm afraid all the time. God longs to bring transformation. 
He longs to give you something more by the power that he exerts in your life. So how does this happen? How does this change occur? Well, he says this in verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, it is the spreading influence of our relationship with the Lord that is the catalyst to all this change. It's as we come into this greater sense of intimacy with Jesus that that change begins to occur in our lives, that he begins to take over and transform. And those places where we sense that we were predator more than anything else, he begins to change. Where we think that our appetites were unchangeable, God comes and says, I can fill your hungers with what you were meant to be filled with. Where we felt that those places of fear just frightened us and paralyzed us. God says, I can make them places of play and celebration. But it comes by this relationship. I love the image that Isaiah uses of water spreading out. Like the waters cover the sea is this knowledge coming. And I think of our lives and I think of how God wants to spread out in our lives. When I was in Anaheim, one of the things that happened uh, to us was that we had gone out one night to an event with our daughter and we were away for about four hours. And somewhere in the midst of that four hours, a pipe in an upstairs bathroom broke and basically spent the four hours spewing water out into uh, our house. Okay? It saturated the carpets, seriously. It soaked through and seeped into the spaces between the walls, so much so that all of the house was affected. They had to come in and begin to tear out walls where the water was initiating change. And you see, in the same way, the Spirit of God longs to work within us where the water of the Spirit begins to flow into all the recesses of our lives, all those places that are deep, all those places that maybe we've kept hidden, and that Spirit longs to flow into those places and bring transformation there so that we would not remain the same, so that we would not be sitting there saying, is this the best it's going to be? And for many of us, we may have walked in this morning and said, this is as good as it gets. It ain't going to change. And I want you to know this morning that God has something far deeper in mind for you. And when the water of his spirit begins to flow into the places of your life, it longs to create that transformation that only he can bring about. Not just your good intentions, but the very power of God brought to bear on those places that need change. This is the Christ who comes and gives us hope that we don't have to remain in this place that we're stuck in, but that we can change and be something that is truly incredible and truly the vision of the great creator. I'm more and more convinced that Christ is creating in me someone that he's going to be comfortable with enjoying for eternity. And he's doing that in you as well as you come and surrender to the Spirit. The last reality, the final reality, is the reality of a new community. It says in verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west, and together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. The Messiah is creating a new community. And it's characterized by a couple different things, actually three that I want you to just think about. The first is this new community will be characterized by a place. I want you to notice that in verse 10, it says... In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. God has a glorious home for his people. And throughout the history of his people, he's been telling them about it. He's been, he's been saying, I'm preparing. I'm giving you a place to dwell. And that place is a place of his glorious presence and his rest. We do have a place to call home. We do have a place that God is preparing and providing for us. And I'll tell you, in the midst of being overwhelmed with stress and anxiety, it reminds me that there is a hope when I hear this, that I can take my place in Christ. That Christ can be my home of glorious presence and of rest. You see, I can come home. But also, this new community will be characterized by a people. I want you to notice that in these verses, that God has big arms that embrace many people. In fact, he embraces the nations. And then he does remarkable things in drawing them in, in gathering them. And he takes those that are alienated in his family, those of Judah and Ephraim, and he makes them one again. He brings unity. You see, this is a community of unity. It is a people inclusive and unified, a people given a second chance, a people living in unity under the gracious Messiah and his rule. This new community will be characterized by a person. The banner, the banner that is spoken of here, which this new community gathers around, is that root, the root of Christ. As he is lifted up, all those nations are gathered around. The banner and flag of the community that the Christ brings is the very cross of Christ. This community is a place characterized by grace and love and forgiveness. All relationships are now seen through that lens. 
All others are seen as valued and loved because they are valued and loved by God and they are people for whom Christ died. No one is marginalized, but instead everyone is drawn in close because they're incredibly beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. The humble and broken gather around his cross as the infinitely valued, loved, and forgiven of God. They are his children. This is the new community. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So how might we experience these three realities this Christmas? Well, I want to just give you three ideas to take with you this morning. The first is this. Embrace a discipline that keeps you attentive to Christ and practice it intentionally during the season. Now, discipline for many of us is just an ugly word, you know? We think of it and we just go, wow, discipline, don't really like that, you know? We're coming into the season of excess. Think of how much calorie intake you will have during this season, okay? For some of you, that might just be the discipline you want to deal with. But really, the disciplines that I think are going to help us are the ones that keep us attentive to who Christ is. So what might that be? It might be joining a small group where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ and he is in the midst. It might be coming to something like morning prayer and giving up some time in the morning to be attentive to the Lord. It might mean committing yourself to pray. And to read the account of the Christmas story and be reminded of the one who has come and is coming. Secondly, not only the sense of discipline, but surrender control of an area of brokenness to his transforming power and process. Now, this is going to involve you being honest with yourself. Okay? And if you're like me, one of the things that I'm really good at is uh, denying that I have a problem... And if I do have one, I rationalize it so that, you know, it's, I can make it go away. Now, imagine for a moment that the last thing that God wants you to do is rationalize bad behavior. So where do you need to surrender a place of brokenness in your life that God might transform you there? And that might be just going into the altar and asking somebody to pray for you in that area of brokenness. It might mean showing up on Tuesday night for Celebrate Recovery because you come to a community that longs to see healing and transformation happen in a loving and grace-filled environment. Will you be willing to surrender that place of brokenness to the Lord because there's the beginning of transformation is recognizing something needs change and God has the power to change it. The last thing is this. Give thanks for the community of the cross and extend the grace of the cross to others. I'll tell you, it seems that at Christmas, families get together and they are some of the most incredibly wonderful times that we remember and think of. My daughter has been texting me about how excited she is to come home for Christmas. And I'm really grateful for that. But you know, the other thing about families is that they are the group of people that can drive us craziest the quickest. There is something about my family that can drive me nutty. Okay? And you know, they've listened to me preach before and they've heard me say that. 
And they just say, that's because we're your progeny. We do it because you do it. So the nuttiness is kind of part of that deal. But oftentimes in that place where it's crazy and our family looks like, man, oh, man, just get away from me. That's where we need the cross to be our lens. We need to see not just these people that make us upset, but we need to see our own brokenness and receive them with the love and forgiveness that Jesus brings in the cross. I can see so easily the deficiencies of others and none of my own. To see and celebrate the community of the cross is to recognize that we gather together all broken under the grace and healing and transforming power of Christ. We come to the place of the cross. And I'd like to suggest that just to allow the shadow of the cross to move over all those relationships, that shadow of forgiveness and love and grace. So what things are you relying on to give you hope this Christmas? My hope is that you would begin to refocus on the realities of the Christ, of change, and of this new community. I want us to close in prayer, and as you go today, may you go with a sense of the hope of Christ. As we pray now, I'm going to pray a particular prayer, and I just want to pray this over you. And it comes from St. Patrick's breastplate, and it goes like this. Christ as a light, illumine and guide me. Christ as shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me. Christ beside me on my left and my right. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek yet all-powerful, Christ as a light, Christ as a shield, Christ beside me on my left and my right. And we pray this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.